you guys merry christmas happy holidays and all that jazz and this is the christmas sort of edition of the movie retrospective so i've probably mentioned it before um actually i know i've mentioned it before several times but i love horror anthologies of all kinds and i have a particular soft spot in my heart for the british what they call the portmanteau films that were released by Amicus Productions back in the 1960s and 1970s. So because it's Christmas, I decided to talk about a movie that isn't entirely based around Christmas per se, but does actually have one segment that's set on Christmas Eve and features kind of like a killer Santa. So I figured like it kind of counts like as a Christmas movie. So I'm talking, of course, about the 1972 film Tales from the Crypt. Now, this was a five-segment anthology movie directed by Freddie Francis, who had done a couple of amicus uh, anthologies before. He did uh, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors from 1965. He did Torture Garden from 1967. Um, incidentally, he's actually, like, he directed a lot of stuff, but he's better known as a cinematographer. And he actually worked on some really, like, classic movies, like The Innocents from 1961, you know, the based on uh, Turn of the Screw that was an adaptation to turn the screw and uh he worked with david lynch like he worked on three david lynch movies elephant man uh dune and the straight story and uh he directed a couple of hammer films too uh including the evil of frankenstein from 1964 and dracula has risen from the grave for 1968 so you know the guys like got a really good resume so Amicus Productions, I kind of feel like, you know, they're kind of known for their anthology films, even though I think in total they only made seven. They made like some other films as well that were just like all one story, like The Skull and stuff. But the thing about it is, in spite of being based in London, based around Shepperton Studios, and being kind of like heavily associated with the UK, obviously, uh, the company was actually founded by two Americans who were producers and screenwriters, uh, Milton Subotsky and Max Rosenberg. Now, Milton Subosky in particular was a big fan of EC Comics, you know, like the American, you know, there were William Gaines comics. They had did all different kinds, but, um, you know, they did kind of the horror ones, which is the ones that we're talking about, like, in particular. So uh, Subotsky was actually able to sell his partner, Max Rosenberg, on purchasing the rights to the various horror comic series that EC had done, like Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, and The Haunt of Fear. And they decided they were going to adapt some of these stories into an anthology film and they actually ended up doing a couple more subsequently after the success of this one now i'm probably i'm sure that probably most people particularly like maybe younger people or people my generation and younger um they're probably more familiar with the very iconic hbo tales from the crypt series like from the 1990s i think it started in 1989 but like it went into the 90s um but in spite of that this 1972 film was as far as i'm aware uh the first time that any of the stories from the ec comics had been adapted to the big screen or the small screen for that matter like i said i'm not entirely sure if that's the case but i'm pretty sure it is now even though the finished film in 1972 was called Tales from the Crypt. Um, only two of the featured stories in the movie were taken from that particular comic. Two of the other ones in the movie were taken from The Haunt of Fear, and the remaining one was actually sourced from The Vault of Horror. So first up, after uh, Box, Tokata, and Fugue <laughs> plays on the shit, uh, we have the start of the wraparound story. So we're actually following a tour group that's exploring like some creepy catacombs. I think they actually shot this in Highgate Cemetery in London, if I'm not mistaken. 
Now, even though the guide tells, you know, very specifically, like, tells everybody to stay together and not lag behind, uh, five very inattentive motherfuckers, or people who just don't give a shit, I guess, wander off on their own anyway, and they soon find themselves in this kind of spooky little crypt grotto type situation, and it has, like, a little stone seat with, like, a big skull and the carved in the wall and shit like that. Now, once they're inside, and then, like, the kind of door seals behind them and they can't get out, a man in sort of like a monk-looking getup uh, suddenly appears. So this is the Crypt Keeper, and in this iteration, he's played by the legendary stage actor Sir Ralph Richardson, who was also in another movie that I discussed uh, recently on my Flickers of Fear series, which was Whoever Slew Auntie Rue, which is another Christmas horror movie. So they all come in there. The Crypt Keeper basically tells them, hey, I'll sit down and, like, zip your lips. Um, I'm going to, like, tell you some shit you know, like, that I know some stuff about you. So then we delve into the stories proper. So the first segment, which is the Christmas one, uh, is called And All Through the House. And it was taken from a story in The Vault of Horror, number 35, uh, which came out in 1954. And again, set on Christmas Eve. So you have a woman named Joanne, who's actually played by Joan Collins. And very near the beginning of the story, she... (laughs) quite coldly like sneaks up behind her husband while he's reading the paper and essentially just like shanks the motherfucker honest, they don't really show like how they do it she did it with a poker so i guess she like hit him on the hat or something like that but they don't like actually show it um so this kills him instantly and uh also has the added side effect of getting red temper paint all over the white shag rug yeah this has got that like super fake looking blood uh so it turns out that she bumped off the old man for his life insurance policy so she's gonna have to make the whole thing look like an accident she probably should have planned this shit better though because not only is her daughter carol who's actually played by chloe franks who was also in whoever slew annie rue like that movie that i just talked about uh so the daughter is upstairs and she's actually supposed to be sleeping but she's still awake because of course it's christmas eve and she's super super excited about Santa coming. But apparently Joanne's whole plan, which you realize as, you know, things start to unfold, was she wanted to make it look like her husband fell down the basement stairs and just like busted his skull open, presumably. Which makes me wonder like why didn't she just lure him to the basement steps and shove him down anyway? Like rather than killing him in the living room, getting blood all over the carpet and the fireplace poker, which she then has to clean up, and then having to like haul his big ass over to the basement stairs anyway, it just seems like, you know, I'm not an expert in spouse killing or anything like that. I'm just kind of like throwing out some constructive criticism. I'm just saying I would have gone about things a little bit differently. That's all I'm saying. So while Joanne starts cleaning up the scene, uh, the very eerie like Christmas carols that she's been listening to on the radio, because again, Christmas Eve, uh, it's interrupted by a news bulletin. Now it turns out that a dangerous lunatic has escaped from a nearby asylum and is now running around loose in the area dressed in a Santa suit. Now, to her credit, Joanne does immediately take this threat seriously. Like, she's like, oh, shit. And she goes and, like, locks all the doors and windows and pulls all the curtains closed, which, again, she probably should have done before if she was going to be killing her husband that evening and all. And wouldn't you know it, but the crazy murderous Santa does actually show up at the house, kind of leering in through the windows and, like, trying to get inside. Now, Joanne actually starts to call the cops, but then she's like, oh shit, that's right, I haven't finished cleaning up the murder scene to make it look like an accident yet, so probably I should refrain from calling the cops until, like, that deed is done, you know what I mean? So after she's done cleaning everything up, um, you know, she kind of, like, dumps her husband's body down the basement stairs in a stunt that actually looked like 
somebody could have broke their neck. So props to the stunt guy for doing that because I was like, holy shit. Yeah, it looks really painful. So she pushes him down the stairs and then very artfully like drips blood on the side of his head and on the floor and everything like that. And I'm just like, I think you're overthinking it. It's like, you know what I mean? Uh, so, but she looks around. She's very satisfied with her handiwork. Yeah, that totally looks like an accident. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get away with this shit. So then she goes upstairs to like check on her daughter, but her daughter is no longer in bed. So obviously she's frantic, like, where the hell did this kid go? Did she see what I just did or anything like that? So she runs back downstairs looking for the kid, uh, only to find that Carol, the daughter, has let the maniac inside, believing that he's the real Santa Claus. Even though, I mean, he looks like kind of like a homeless drunk, but you know what I mean. They, she's a kid, she doesn't know. So uh, the lunatic in the Santa suit then proceeds to essentially like strangle Joanne to death as Christmas music plays spookily in the background. So this was actually a very, very short, but uh, still a really effective story. It's actually told with very, very little dialogue. I mean, the dialogue is very, very minimal, but it's still like really creepy and it's like pretty compelling. And the, the Christmas music, like the Christmas carols going on in the background would give it this really like unsettling vibe because, you know, it's like this pretty Christmas music that's playing while Joanne is like very dispassionately like cleaning up the murder scene like because she's just very like boop like you're dead and then she's like yep scrubbing up the blood and like all this other kind of stuff just like she doesn't give a shit at all um but yeah so that's really creepy and then like the whole tension about like the killer Santa like lurking around outside um as I mentioned the blood looks fake as fuck but you know, that's kind of par for the course for movies from this era. So it didn't really bother me all that much. It is a little distracting because it's very, very clear that it's tempera paint. Um, and it's because of this consistency and the color and everything like that. But I've seen like other movies like that from this era. And that's just what they did. They didn't figure out like how to darken it until later on. Now, this same story, incidentally, was adapted again for the later HBO series in the 90s. Or actually, this one was from season one, I think, so it was 1989. And it follows pretty much the same plot beats. Although, interestingly, the later one only implied that the killer Santa was going to murder, like, the main lady. Like, it ended when she was still standing there on the staircase screaming, like, oh my god, my daughter brought in the, the Santa. Whereas the version from 1972 actually showed Santa, like, strangling Joanne in front of the fireplace. It didn't show her die but he's basically like ah, and she's like oh, you know what I mean so it, it's it just showed more which I thought was like kind of interesting so the second story in the anthology was also another short one uh reflection of death and this was taken from tales from the crypt number 23 from 1951 so in this story we're introduced to like a kind of shitty dude named Carl who's played by Ian Hendry and he tells his wife and kids that he's going on a business trip, but he's actually running off with his mistress, Susan, who's played by Angela Grant, and he's never planning on returning. While the lovebirds are like driving along a road that night, very excited about, you know, going to their new flat, starting their new life together, yada, yada. They get into an accident after like swerving to avoid a truck that's like drifted into their lane. Now... After the accident, it seems as though Carl is alive and, like, was thrown clear of the vehicle, but we're not entirely sure what happened to Susan or how bad Carl's injuries are because we're suddenly seeing everything from Carl's point of view. So as he starts, like, lumbering around, presumably, like, looking for help, a few people see him and, like, flee from him in terror. So you can probably guess kind of where this story is going. So Carl makes his way back to the home of his wife and family and kind of like peeks in the window only to observe that his wife is being consoled by another man that appears to be her husband. And I was like, damn, she moved on quick, whatever. 
Either that or I think what he thinks is that, oh, I went away on the business trip and she immediately like had some other dude come over. So Carl like knocks on the door, but when his wife answers, she freaks the hell out like at the sight of him and then just like slams the door in his face. And he's just like, huh, okay, that's a little weird. So obviously he's very confused. Uh, so he next goes to Susan's apartment. Now Susan herself answers the door and she looks like pretty okay. I mean, she looks like she got through the accident, presumably like unscathed. She also doesn't react to Carl with horror as everybody has so far. But we soon realize that this is because she's actually blind. And yes, you guessed it. She was blinded in the accident, but spoiler alert, Carl was killed. And not only that, but it happened two goddamn years ago. So he's, I don't know if he's been wandering around for two years or if it just took two years for him to dig out of his grave or what, but it's been two years. Um, so yeah, he's in the apartment and Susan said, uh, hey, you died two years ago. What, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? She seems like pretty calm, all things considered. Um, I think she doesn't know that it's him. She's like, Carl died two years ago. So, cause she can't see him, like I said. Uh, so actually Carl looks down and sees his like zombie-like visage kind of like reflected in this mirror-topped coffee table that she has. And he has like just a total meltdown. And at that point, he actually like snaps awake in the passenger seat of the car, like driving with Susan toward their new life or whatever, like back at the beginning of the story. So like it was all a dream. But then he tells her, oh my God, I had the worst fucking dream. And then the accident like that started this whole chain of events like happens again, like for real. So it's almost kind of like the previous story had all been a premonition. So this was a pretty good yarn as well. Um, even though it's pretty obvious, like as soon as the accident happens, like what the outcome is gonna be, you know what I mean? Um, it's still entertaining though. And the fact that it's so short means that it kind of like gets in and out without dawdling. And that gives it like a lot more impact, even though, like I said, you can pretty much tell where it's gonna go. So the third story is called Poetic Justice. And this one is notable for featuring the awesome Peter Cushing in a very, very like emotionally heartbreaking role. He's kind of playing a lovable widower who sort of like um, is the target of two snotty assholes. So this story actually originally appeared in the Haunt of Fear comic, uh, number 12 from 1952. So you got two kind of status conscious upper class twits, James Elliott and his dad, Edward, uh, who are played by Robin Phillips and David Markham, respectively. And they live in this sort of kind of swanky neighborhood doing swanky man things, you know. So there's something about the neighborhood that kind of sticks in their craw, though. And that is the shabbily dressed person of Arthur Grimsdyke, who is played by Peter Cushing, uh, as I mentioned, who is an elderly, like, garbage man, and he lives across the street. Now, although Mr. Grimsdyke is a delightful, delightful human being uh, who is just adored by all the neighborhood children and, you know, has a particular fondness for caring for stray dogs because he has like a bunch of dogs, uh, the snobby dickheads across the street think that his kind of shabby looking appearance and his sort of run down a little bit house are lowering everyone's property values. Now, Mr. Grimsdyke uh, doesn't want to move, even though the neighborhood is kind of like gentrified around him, I guess they imply, because he shared this house with his wife for many years, 
And he still feels her presence there and kind of like cherishes the memories that they made together in this house. He's also, they note, a believer in spiritualism and he talks to his dead wife regularly, like using this kind of like little cardboard Ouija board type situation, like asking her for advice. And the thing about it, these scenes are actually like pretty sad, like to watch because if you know anything about Peter Cushing, um, he actually had a really hard time like dealing with the loss of his own wife, like in real life. So you can really tell that he put a lot of his own experience into this role and you know, it, it's pretty sad. It's like pretty sad to watch it. So because the two snotty neighbors, especially the son, like more the son than the dad, um, since they're both petty little bitches, they decide that they're going to essentially like conduct a campaign of terror against this poor old man in order to drive him out of the neighborhood. So they do shit like they tear up another neighbor's prize roses and blame Grimdike, Grimsdike's dogs, um, you know, which kind of like brings down animal control and they come and confiscate all the dogs, which is terrible. Um, they actually engineer it so that he loses his job. And because he's only two years from retiring, like he ends up losing his pension as well. So they're trying to like also drive him into poverty, which nice. Then they start like a whisper campaign that he's basically a pedophile. Like they don't state that explicitly, but it's very, very heavily implied that that's what they mean. And that actually like causes all the parents to forbid their children from visiting him. Cause like it used to be the kids would go visit him and he would do like little puppet shows and play games with them and stuff like that. And now everybody thinks he's a perv. So none of the kids will come visit him anymore and he doesn't really know why. I mean, it's pretty diabolical all around like what this fucking shithead does. So poor old Mr. Grimsdyke is not really sure like why life is shitting on him so copiously all of a sudden because he doesn't know about the dorks uh, across the street. But he does kind of try and maintain his positive attitude because he is like a very like upbeat kind of happy dude. Um, and he kind of like talks to his deceased wife to make himself feel better. So the neighbor, James, is mad that all of these plots that he's been trying to cook up haven't really resulted in Grimsdyke moving away, so he decides on another scheme. So since Valentine's Day is right around the corner, James writes out like a shit ton of Valentine's Day cards and they all contain these really hateful like verses and poems in there about pretty much how everyone wishes that Grimsdyke would just like fuck off and go away, you know what I mean? And then he fakes it so that it looks like the cards come from everyone in the neighborhood, like everybody in the neighborhood sent him one saying, you suck, you know what I mean? Um, now, apparently this is the last straw for Grimsdyke. I mean, he can't stand, he's just a nice old man and he can't stand the thought of everyone despising him. And sadly, he ends up hanging himself. So we then jump ahead a year. Uh, it's Valentine's Day again, and James seems to be feeling a little bit guilty about that whole driving a harmless old man to suicide thing that he pulled last year. A little late to be worried about it now, bud. Uh, but guilty or not, uh, since this is an EC comic story, obviously, you just know that this douchebag is going to get his deserved comeuppance. Uh, and in due course, Grimsdyke digs his way out of his own grave and shuffles on over to James's house, where he ends up tearing out the fucker's heart and leaving it wrapped up in like a Valentine poem that he wrote in the motherfucker's blood, which, you know, 
good riddance. I mean, he had that coming, I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say, too, that I think the makers of My Bloody Valentine saw this movie for sure. Because the closing scene of this, like, where his dad comes out and is, like, this bloody poem, and then he opens back the paper, and then there's, like, the heart is in there. I mean, that's very much like a scene from My Bloody Valentine from 1981. So this was another really solid story. I mean, Peter Cushing, like I said, is really affecting in it. I mean, you just feel so fucking bad for him, because he just seems like such a sweet old man, and this chode across the street is just being the literal worst like for the most pointless of reasons because it's like oh well his house looks a little bit shabby or he looks a little bit shabby and blah 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 and it's like we're gonna do all this horrible shit i mean i can't imagine um have to say i think this was probably the goriest like of all the segments um you know what with the torn out heart and all that which i mean it's not that graphic by modern standards but it was still like pretty rough for like a pg movie like you know even from back then uh, I have to say, too, that the undead Peter Cushing makeup was also pretty great. I mean, especially because you rarely get to see Peter Cushing as a zombie. So I thought that was, like, pretty cool. And I liked the, I particularly liked the teeth they put on him. I don't know why, but he looked, like, pretty creepy, and I thought it was pretty cool. So the fourth story, Wish You Were Here, is basically a riff on the classic, you know, W.W. Jacob's tale, The Monkey's Paw, which I think we probably all read in school. And uh, this variation of the tale appeared in The Haunt of Fear, number 22, from 1953. So it centers around a businessman named Ralph, who's played by Richard Green. And he's going bankrupt because apparently of some like nefarious dealings he's been up to. So his lawyer, financial advisor, whatever, um, tells him, well, you better start selling off some shit because uh, you're broke. But I mean, from the looks of it, I think he'll be just fine. I mean, he's got a mansion that's like stuffed with expensive antiques. He's got a sweet sports car that would probably bring in a pretty penny if he sold that. I mean, you know, the thing, it's like rich people bankruptcy. It's not the same as poor people bankruptcy, you know, the kind where you actually have zero dollars and zero assets. It's like, oh, I'm so poor. I have this huge mansion and a sports car and all these antiques that are worth millions of dollars. Boo hoo. You know what I mean? I was just kind of like, yeah, cry me a river, motherfucker. So while Ralph and his wife Enid, who's played by Barbara Murray, they're at home like mooning over all of these beautiful possessions that they now have to sell because they don't have any money left, you know, relatively. Um, Enid suddenly sees a previously unnoticed inscription like on the base of this Chinese statue that they have. So it's basically a similar setup to the monkey's paw where the thing grants three wishes, but it also warns you to like be careful what you wish for and how you go about wishing for it because the wording of it is like really, really important. It'll pretty much take everything like as literally as possible or it'll like figure out a way to fuck you over somehow like while giving you what you want at the same time, just like in the monkey's paw. So they don't really believe it, but they figure what the hell, you know what I mean? So Enid actually like, you know, grabs the thing and wishes for a lot of money. Even though I will note that in the universe of this segment of this story, both Ralph and Enid, the characters, have read The Monkey's Paw and remember what happened in it. Despite this, they go ahead and do this shit anyway, I guess because they're desperate, but also because they're kind of idiots. So much like in the original story, the money does appear, as promised, but in the form of a life insurance payout after Ralph is killed in a car crash. Now, in the original story, the couple actually got the money after their son got killed in an industrial accident at work. I think he got trapped in the machinery or something like that. So Ralph's car crash uh, actually happened because Ralph was speeding as he tried to get away from this guy on a motorcycle behind him that had like a skull face, you know what I mean? So it was kind of like, 
it was kind of implying that there was like some supernatural shenanigans like hey you're gonna kill you we're like you know what i mean and then like he crashed the car so the very distraught enid is now a rich woman but instead of just shrugging her shoulders and accepting the win <laughs> being like oh well he's dead at least i have all this money she makes the very stupid second wish that Ralph could be back to the way he was just before the accident. So like I said, she tries to be really careful with her wording, like because not only did she see what happened with the first wish, but she's also read the story, The Monkey's Paw, that like I said, the, the wish, like the way you word it, it tries to like fuck you over. But in this case, the Chinese figurine slash monkey's paw is still cleverer than she is, which not a high bar to clear, gonna say. Uh, so she wishes for him to be back to the way he was before the accident. So a bunch of pallbearers like bring in Ralph's body in a coffin, like into the house. So they open the coffin and he's dead, obviously, but there's not a scratch on him. And that's because they discovered that the accident didn't actually kill him. He actually had a heart attack from fright, because remember, skeleton dude on the motorcycle, before his car wrecked. Thus, the magical statue did as Enid asked exactly and restored him to the state he was just before the accident, stone cold dead from fright. So at this point, the lawyer financial advisor guy, whose name is Charles, if I didn't uh, mention that, he very wisely tells Enid to like quit it with the wishing like while she's ahead um, and just let the dude rest in peace and she's still got all the money. But Enid is just like beside herself and makes the absolutely stupidest wish of all. Had she stopped now, yeah, her husband would be dead, but she's still all of them all the money. But no, she doesn't do that. She wishes that Ralph would be restored to life, and further she goes on and says, and that he'll live forever, which I was like, oh, so close. Why did you have to say that? So Ralph comes back to life, all right, but the poor bastard, he's dead. He's been embalmed, and the embalming fluid in his veins is thus causing him unendurable agony. Uh, Enid is horrified, obviously, at what she's done. I'm like, you dumb bitch. <laughs> Why? Why did you say that? So she, like, actually attempts to put him out of his misery, like, chopping off some of his limbs in the process, like his hands and stuff. But because she wished for him to live forever, he can't die now. So now he's going to spend the rest of eternity, uh, presumably, in excruciating pain. So I'm just like... Good one, Enid. I'm sure he's really going to appreciate that shit. So this story as well was sort of adapted again on the later HBO series, but it was actually called Last Respects. Um, it actually went back to using the actual monkey's paw instead of the Chinese statue. And it made the wishing protagonists like three feuding sisters, like rather than a married couple. So not really all that similar now that I think about it, but kind of similar. So the final story, Blind Alleys, is also the longest by quite a large margin and was taken from Tales from the Crypt number 46 uh, from 1955. So in this story, there's kind of like an authoritarian type military dude named Major William Rogers, who's played by Nigel Patrick. And he gets a new job as the director of a home for the blind. And it's all men, so I guess it's just like a men's home for the blind or whatever. Now, right from the start, this, this motherfucker is a hard ass. Like, he's trying to save money by turning off the heat, like, in the dorms at night, rationing out the blankets, like, giving the mostly elderly residents just watery gruel to eat instead of real food. Like, he's not giving them any meat or anything. And, uh, you know, as if that wasn't bad enough, like, while the blind residents are all, like, suffering, 
the major himself, of course, is living kind of high on the hog. I mean, he decorates his office with these really expensive paintings. Like, he drinks, like, really pricey wine. Like, he's eating really nice meals, like, on these china dishes. You know what I mean? It's that type of shit. So, one of the residents, whose name is George Carter, and he's actually played by Patrick McGee from A Clockwork Orange, among many other things. Uh, he actually tries to reason with the major, but uh, the director is not sympathetic and he even threatens to sick his trained german shepherd shane on the men uh if they piss and moan too much now after one of the blind men actually freezes to death like one night in the dorm because no heat and no blankets remember george and the others decide that's the straw that broke the camel's back and they are going to band together and take a very very elaborate revenge on the major so what they do, and it takes a while for this to play out, and I wasn't entirely... I'd seen this movie before, but I didn't remember, like, what it was that they were doing. You know what I mean? And it takes a while before you figure it out. So basically, they have this thing where the first thing they do is lure his dog away, like, using meat for, like, or little meat scraps or whatever, like, left over from their lunches. Because they need the dog, because otherwise he'll sick the dog on them, like I said. So he, they lure the dog away, and then they lock it in this chamber, like, down in the basement. And then they're all able to kind of like just through strength of numbers, they're able to go back and subdue the major himself because he's kind of like a weenie when he doesn't have his dog like to fucking, you know, front for him. So they kind of overcome him and they put him in like a separate cell in the basement. Like he can hear the dog barking, but he can't like get to him. Meanwhile, the blind men very systematically like construct this sort of like hallway trap kind of situation. And it has like all of these razor blades like sticking out of the walls like at certain points. Now, after a couple of days, I guess it's like two or three days, they actually let the major out. But he finds himself like he's like, what the fuck? Like it's all like closed in, you know what I mean? Because they built this whole thing around it so he kind of finds him there's only one way for him to go so he's like herded down this hallway and he just narrowly avoids getting sliced to ribbons with the blades because the walls are like really close together and there's all these little blades sticking out unbeknownst to him though at the other end of the hallway his dog has been trapped in that small cell without any food for the same amount of time like so it's been several days since the dog's eaten so when the blind men release the dog and then they turn out the lights too so that like the major can't see anything so suffice it to say that the major is either and uh, and or going to get uh, sliced up by razors and eaten by his own dog uh, pretty much no matter what he does. And, you know, again, good riddance. He really had that coming because he was a gigantic dickhead. And this was also a pretty damn good story. It went on a little bit too long for my taste, uh, especially in contrast with the other stories, which are all like pretty short. But, I mean, I actually didn't mind it too much because the Major's fate, like, when he finally, you know, when it finally happened was so delicious. And the fact that it was so prolonged, I think, like, made the payoff a lot more effective. Um, you know, and it's always nice to see Patrick McGee in something. Uh, and really, in this one, he's, like, at his Patrick McGee-ist, like, in this as well. That's always a big plus because he's, I love him. He's such a great actor. So this story, Blind Alleys, was also adapted again for the later HBO series, um, even though the title was actually changed to Revenge is the Nuts. And the main protagonist was changed to a blind woman. Uh, it was set in a school for the blind, but there were women at it too. And she was a blind woman and she was actually raped by the director, like among other indignities. Uh, so the story is similar to the original in other respects, but they did change that aspect of it. So after all five stories have played out, and in case I didn't mention it, like the five people in the crypt at the beginning of the movie were all the main characters, like in the subsequent segments. 
Uh, it's then revealed to no one's surprise that the Crypt Keeper is actually just showing these assholes like their misdeeds before sending them off to hell. Like, this is why you're going to hell because of this shit that you did. So hell is like right outside the stone door of this crypt because one of them opens it and they're like, ah, and then they fall down in like a really bad optical effect, like into the fiery pit down below. Um, so yeah, so while it's pretty easy to see this twist coming, like, you know, these people are all already dead or they're in purgatory or whatever, um, it's still fun. Although I have to admit <laughs> that I did wonder why it was the character of Ralph in the Wish You Were Here segment that ended up in the Hell Crypt. For one thing, um, it seemed like he didn't do anything like all that terrible. Like he didn't kill anybody or anything like some of the other people did. Really the worst thing he did as far as I could determine was that there was like a hint that some shady business dealings had been the cause of his bankruptcy, but which is bad, but it's not that bad. Not like murdering people like most of the other people did. And for another thing I have to note, in the context of his story that he was in, he actually couldn't die because the wife had wished for him to live forever. So what what is he even doing here? Like he's an eternal being now, so he shouldn't even be in this shit. Um, you know, I don't know, whatever. I'm just overthinking the whole thing. That's kind of what I do, so sorry. So yeah, I mean, although this version of Tales from the Crypt, it's pretty restrained, like especially in comparison to even the original comic books, which were actually like pretty gory. And, you know, obviously the much more flamboyant and like much gorier and much funnier like HBO series, um, you know, and not to mention you know, obviously Creepshow, uh, you know, from the 1980s, which was, I guess, EC Comics adjacent. It wasn't like specifically based on any EC Comics stories. It was all like original stories that were in the spirit of EC Comics. Um, and that was kind of like more like the original comics. So this movie is very like, is based on stories from that, but it's a lot more subdued than those stories would be. Like, it's not quite as gory. It's not, I mean, you know, it's British and it's like from the 1970s. But it's still a really enjoyable flick if you like British movies from this era. And it's pr it's a pretty damn good anthology, like one of the better ones. Um, and like I said, since it's Christmas today, it's a, uh, you know, counts, sort of counts a as a Christmas movie. And also kind of counts as a Valentine's Day movie if you want to get technical. So it has that going for it. Um, you know, but whatever holiday you watch it for, uh, get, you know, give it a look if you've never seen it and you like anthology movies. Or if you've seen it, like, let me know what you thought about it in the comments. And then I'll do it for this retrospective. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and I'll see you guys again on the next one. Bye.